Hey, before we get into the word, could you put the lyrics, the, the part of the song we just sang that, that starts with, uh, I think it's bless, bless him or bless, bless God, when we first start? Yeah, the first, the first time we start to sing that. Will you put that up there, the bridge? Yeah, there it is. So uh, I love this song. It's, man, we, I, we were in this a couple times, right? We haven't done this song very many times, yeah. So um, this song is, is first of all, it, it rocked. Am I right? The, and, and I love that song because there, the instrumentation is not powerful. Like it's not a, it's sort of an acoustic. It's a very quiet song, but it felt loud. Did it? And it felt it felt strong, even if it wasn't thumping. <laughs> uh, and, and I think it, there's a reason for that. You know what? Bless God in the sanctuary. Bless God in the fields of plenty. That, that's, a, that's easy. Well, you know, when, I mean, it's easy to <laughs> praise God in those moments. Go to the next, uh, the next part there. <clears throat> this is the flip side of that, when things are hard. And then the next part is, it, was, it stood out to me. Every chance I get, I bless your name. Um, hands are empty. Praise that cost me. I mean, Every chance I get, we sang that a few times, right? Is that not the most hypocritical I've felt today? You know what I mean? It's hard to even sing those words because they feel like such hypocrisy. Because the, the fact of the matter is, no, nope, right? I don't, I don't. But repentance is not perfection, you know. And I just felt led to begin this way because we sing these songs. And I don't want you to feel like you're singing them unworthily, you know. Because the fact of the matter is we don't bless God, praise God, every chance we get. But repentance is not perfection. Repentance is a, a heart of desire, right? And so when you sing those words, every chance I get, I praise your name. While they may not be true, they're not hypocrisy. They're not hypocritical because as believers, we sing those words with a desire in our heart, right? Right? And so I just want to encourage you, when we sing songs like that, even if you come up short of them, in fact, especially if you come up short of them, man, praise God for those words. Every chance I get up, even if it's not true, God, that's my heart's desire. And I just wanted to lead with that today because that is such a song of repentance, you know? Because the fact of the matter is, everyone in here hadn't been the sanctuary this week, hadn't always been the fields of plenty. Sometimes it's been a darkest valley, and sometimes it's been when it costed something. And maybe not every chance that you got, you bless the name of God. But what a great song of repentance. Tonight, or this morning rather, we're going to look at a, a passage that I think really runs parallel to that. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 21 through 42. Acts 5, 21 through 42. Yesterday uh, and, and last night, our, our kids had some friends over, and uh, we were kind of doing a little Bible story before bedtime. And we were reading one of those. Uh, it wasn't the Jesus Storybook Bible, but I forget the name of the one that we were reading, but it's similar to that, similar to the one that we give to our families whenever they do baby and child dedication. And those books are so good. Not all of them are created equally, by the way. Some of them are just fluff, and they're just pictures and words. Uh, but these really have a substance to them. And uh, the one that we were going through is, you open it up, I never know what, what we're going to look at whenever I look, look to the next one in the, in the line that we're going through. And it's a uh, story of Job. Can you imagine? Job. To, uh, to kids, right? Uh, and so we were, we were with the, the kids and, and some friends, and we were reading a Bible story about Job. The story, you know, it's a life of hardship that was ultimately for Job's good. He, tr he suffered tremendous loss. Uh, even, when it always, when, even when it wasn't always fun, ultimately God was working things for his good. It's a great, you know, a great Bible book to, to know. Um, but the first part of that, it started out with a question, and, you know, I started out, I basically read it exactly as it said, and you got, you know, we had six, seven kids in the room, and I just said, you know, recess, when you go to school, recess is fun, but where do you learn more, recess or in the classroom? And the kids all said at the same time, recess! And I was like, wrong, you bad little kids. No, I didn't say that. No, that's not true, right? Uh, recess is not where we learn the most. It's fun, but the truth is the easygoing, fun, carefree times are not the times that we experience the most growth, whether that's as a child or as an adult. As a child, you may have had a summer job. Was that fun? No, but you learned a lot and probably grew a lot. Maybe you went through a breakup as a child. Was that fun? No, and while it's petty now, it probably was a learning experience. Or maybe it was something that actually was big, like suffering big consequences or just a hardship, loss of a parent or, or a friend, even at a young age. You see, those things aren't fun, but God teaches us things and we grow through those things. Or just as a human being, we learn and mature through those things. And I say that to say that because 
The same is true in the life of a believer. You see, God may teach us a few things in carefree recess, but he tends to stretch us and grow us and mold us and sanctify us, not in recess where things are carefree, but in the struggle of the classroom, the classroom of suffering, if you want to follow the, the motif there. This passage, uh, you know, what we looked at last week and now this week, if, you, if you're new here or a guest of ours, we're going through the book of Acts beginning to end, and we're here in the end of chapter 5. Last week, we saw that the angel of the Lord that was sent released the apostles from prison. They've been preaching the gospel. They got arrested, and then the angel appears at night and releases them from prison, and they go right back to preaching. But here's the thing. The angel does not release the apostles from prison to be safe, you know. He released them from prison not to be safe. That would stunt the growth of the church. He releases them instead to boldly live out the mission that hardship will fan the flame of the Spirit of God. And I'm going to argue today that God intends to do the same in our lives. God intends to do the same in your life and in my life. And we're going to see this as we look at the message and the movement. The message and the movement. Two main parts of this text the message and the movement. Let's look at Acts 5, uh, 21 through 42. It's a good bit to read. Uh, we're going to go fast on this first read through, and then we'll make observations as we come back. Starting in verse 21. In fact, the second half of verse 21, it says, Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel. This is the Sanhedrin. And sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stolen by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you are, having filled Jerusalem, how about that phrase, having filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. That's Jesus' blood. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we're witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, the teacher of the law, held in honor by the people, he stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care of what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas, or Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census, and he drew away some of the people after him. He too perished. And all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God... You will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were accounted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease preaching and teaching that the Christ is Jesus. See, the high priest and the apostles, again, just recapping what's happened before this, the high priest and the apostles, all the apostles, that's the 12, they were arrested. I mentioned this a moment ago. They were arrested for preaching and defying the ruling of these, this, uh, these members of the Sanhedrin. Um, like last time, Peter and John were arrested. This plan seems to have been to get the Sanhedrin together the next day to hold a council and to punish them. And what happens is overnight, as we've already talked about, an angel released them, instructed them to go back to the same place and start teaching the same way again. And by daybreak, they were right back in there, man, doing the same thing. Here's the thing. We know that that's already happened. We know that happened because we looked at it last week. 
And yet, in this passage, we begin reading in verse 21, and there are people in the story that don't know that. That's why they go and look for them, and they can't find them. It's kind of funny, because it's like when you watch a show where you're in on the narrative, but the people in like the actual show don't know what's happening, but you know what's happening, and sometimes that's leveraged for comedic effect. This is what Luke is doing. This is comedy, because we know that they're going to go check that prison, and guess what's not going to be there? God's people. It's there for comedic effect, and this section is meant to make you kind of chuckle. The temple authorities are attempting to control what is beyond their control, and even worse to them, it's in God's control instead of their own. Let's reread here verses 21 through 24 as we begin to walk through this. It says, when the high priest came, those who were with him, they called together the council. Again, that will be the, the Sanhedrin, the ruling, the, the supreme court body of the Jewish people. And all the senate of of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked, the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, this is important, check this out. They were greatly perplexed about them, and this is the part I want you to, to remember here, wondering what this would come to. Wondering what this would come to. There's a certain uncertainty because they're wondering what's going to happen now. They're thinking here, is this going to cause a riot? I mean, these people have 5,000 plus followers and now we've arrested them. They're freed. What's going to happen next? Is it going to be a riot? Is it going to be a revolution? Is Rome going to step in and intervene? Have these guys gone on the run? Will the movement go underground? Ultimately, we know that jealousy is motivating this fear. Look back at verse 17 and 18. Just going to read it real quick. The high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy. That's very important. Filled with jealousy. This isn't a doctrinal issue. They're not worried about theology. This isn't a matter of the teaching of the word. No, no, no. They are upset because God's apostles are siphoning people away from their rabbinical teaching to suddenly a new movement of God's people. It says they arrested the apostles in verse 18 and put them in the public prison. Not for long. In Acts chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, we get a little bit more background. The first time that these guys were questioned after they were first arrested, this is Peter and John, Acts 4, 16 and 17 says, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In other words, they knew for a fact that these guys were doing miracles, and there was nothing they could do to say otherwise. They knew this was the case. That's why it says, and we cannot deny it at the end of verse 16. But then they say, but in order that it may spread no further. What's this really about? Jealousy. In order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Which name do you think that is? Verse 25 and 26 in our passage this morning in chapter 5. I'm going to read these. 25 and 26. And someone came and told them, look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Again, they started at daybreak. They were right right back to it. Then the, the captain with the officers went and brought them, but listen to this detail, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Again, huge following, and they're going to aggressively snatch these dudes up and haul them away while they're healing the sick and preaching a message that is encouraging them. They don't want them problems. You know what I'm saying? So they bring them peacefully, it says. Their confusion is quickly resolved. They find these guys, but they fear the social blowback to bring them into questioning. Which brings another question. Perhaps they're wondering here, why would these men go back to the same place of their arrest and continue doing what got them arrested? And a question that I'm going to leave you with right now as we move into what is the message is simply this. How is this message worth getting arrested a second time and beyond? Not just being arrested a third time, even martyred eventually with many of them. How is this message worth being re-arrested that they would go right back to it? Who does that? Unless they are extremely convinced that what they are doing and what they are believing is the truth. The message, in a word, is Jesus. It's that God saves. That's what Jesus means. We're going to have four things underneath this part of the message in just a moment. But for now, we're just going to leave it at the message, which is Jesus. As we walk through the passage, we're going to see some things that I'll pull out in just a moment. First, uh, a thing that I've shown you guys a few times already is this diagram of the Sanhedrin. We go ahead and put that up there. The Sanhedrin, as I mentioned a minute ago, is like a Jewish Supreme Court. There was several members, as you can see, 70 plus one. The high priest would be the plus one. <clears throat> and this is the way that it would look. They would be in this room. 
Half on one side, half on the other side. You get the high priest that's standing over there, sort of at the head of the table, so to speak. And then you'd have the person that's in question there in the center. Uh, it's like a courtroom. And they would come and they would put them on trial. They'd ask them questions. And then the guy in the front or the guy in the center, or to the, in this case, the 12, would give their defense. And I'm going to urge probably that Peter is the spokesman. He's typically the guy whose mouth always gets him in trouble. But also he seems to have a few good things to say once in a while. This is, uh, let's look at verse 27 and 28. I just want you to have that image in your mind as we read these things. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. So we're, we're talking about the image we just saw. And the high priest questioned them, verse 28, saying, We strictly charged you, again, this is back in chapter 4, not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Again, he's calling back to a time just days prior to this narrative back in chapters 3 and 4. Where back in chapters 3 and 4, remember they said, whose power are you doing this in? What power? What name do you claim to be teaching these things in? Peter's response to that is, the one that you killed. The one whose body you can't find. I'm paraphrasing. The God who sent him. That's the one whose name. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Peter calls him. He also calls him Jesus. This Jesus, the cornerstone, the one that you guys rejected. He's the one that God sent to be the Savior and Messiah of this people. He even says there is salvation in no one else in chapter 4. By the way, in verse 28, notice the links that the high priest goes to avoid saying the name of Jesus. Look at it again. Verse 28. Saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. He knew the name. He knew the name. Could have said Jesus. He omits the name because he don't like the name. He goes on and says, Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. He knew the man. He could have said his name twice. There's a reason why this guy omits his name, because he's trying to get rid of that name, and it annoys him whenever he hears that name and that movement and that message spreading like wildfire. They give them threats back in chapter 4. They go and ignore the threats and continue preaching. Before, they were released because they had not committed a crime. But here's how things change in our passage this morning. This time, they technically have. Because the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, could give an order, and that order was law. They had to abide by that order, and if they disobeyed that order, now they had committed a crime. And so this time, as these guys are arrested for ignoring the command of the Jewish governing body, they give their defense. And their defense is in verses 29, and the first part of verse 30, we're going to stop for just a second. 29 says, but Peter and the apostles answered, and the apostles. I'm going to argue that Peter was probably pretty loud in this one, okay? But they were all clearly giving their defense. The summary is just this simple statement. We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. He even says right after this, the God of our fathers. Notice the the inclusion there. These guys are diametrically opposed in their worldviews. And that Peter is trying to say, and the apostles are trying to say, he's our father. This is our Jesus. This is our message. This is our forgiveness. That can't be overlooked. You see, what they're trying to say is that to obey God will mean to speak an offensive message to a guilty people. They do say the God of our fathers. This is not a separate religion or some heresy. He's trying to help them to see the Jewish faith is continued in Christianity, not divided. And they miss that. We could talk about that for a long time. But what Peter and the apostles are getting at is if you really love and believe our God, the God of our fathers, You'll find what we say next to be true, not false. Let's look at what he says next. The God of our fathers, verse 30, raised Jesus. And that's either raised Jesus up, like like brought him up, or it's literally a resurrection of Jesus. It could be either one. Either way, it doesn't really change the meaning of the text. He says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. That's a mouthful. Let's keep going, though. We'll come back. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. I don't even intend to say this, but notice how Trinitarian this sounds. The God of our fathers, Jesus the Son, he exalted. The Spirit of God bears witness. I mean, it's a pretty Trinitarian passage, just something food for thought. Peter highlights Jesus' status and their guilt. That's his whole goal here. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Messiah, and you are guilty of killing him. Notice in, um, here in the passage we just read, he's, he's saying that the one that you put on a tree, 
That, that may sound a little bit weird, especially if, if, if this is kind of a foreign text to you. Wasn't he put on a cross? It, that's not meant to read like, like put a, like a noose hanging from a tree branch. I mean, that's what a cross is. It's made of a tree. And so, but there's another reason why Peter says it this way. Galatians 3.13, Paul is writing, but Paul is quoting Deuteronomy 21.23 when he writes in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And this is the quote. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who, ha- who is hanged on a tree. There's a word for cross, and Peter didn't use it. The apostles didn't use it. And there's a reason for that. Because they wanted to heighten the shame and the curse of the death that Jesus suffered. So when they say he died on a tree, it's his way of saying, you put the ultimate shame and curse on the Son of God. God heightens the death. You didn't just kill him. You put the ultimate curse on him. The God sent Savior. So there's four things quickly that make up the message. And they're all right here in these three verses that we just read. Real quickly. The first part is that they talk about Jesus who was executed and exalted. They want them to feel the weight of the message. You've got to understand the message that we will eventually get to, which is the message of salvation, it begins with understanding there's a need for saving. Am I right? You've got to understand the need. You can't talk about salvation without understanding there's a need for even saying that word. And Peter is here saying, you executed the Son of God, and God exalted him. Not only did he raise him from the dead, but he exalted him to the right hand of the Father. He is given a special position Peter then calls him leader and savior, which is B, leader and savior. And that word leader is a, is a, is a Greek word that, honestly, it's, it's so loaded. There's a lot of ways to translate it. It could be founder. It could be author. It could be source. In fact, in Hebrews 12, when it calls Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, same word, author. Maybe the source and, and the perfecter, same word. Here it's translated leader, and that really comes up so short of how robust and rich that, re- that word really is is. It holds with it this idea of Jesus being a founder, a source, a leader, a ruler, but really it's someone who explores new territory. You ever ever heard the word trailblazer? The one who goes first. You need a trailblazer because the only only way that the people behind him can come and go through that trail is if somebody goes first and says, I'm going to make a way because there's no way. Isn't that the gospel? That Jesus enters into a problem And he's our trailblazer who goes forward that everyone else can go to. Jesus bore the curse as the leader, the savior, so that he could make a way of salvation. And God exalted him. By the way, it says here in verse 31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. In my translation, which is the English Standard Version, the ESV, some of you guys have asked that. It's the translation in the seat rack in front of you, hopefully. It says, God exalted him in his right hand. And then, not to get overly English grammatical here, but this little phrase where it says, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, that's a special form of verb that is connected to what it says about God exalting him. God exalted is the verb. This to give repentance and forgiveness would be sort of an infinitive clause that's attached to it. I know it's a, kind of a word sandwich, but the reason I say that is this is the result of Jesus being given that position. Because Jesus is leader, the trailblazer, because Jesus is Savior, you and I have the opportunity to be forgiven. It's a really neat, jam-packed, that's letter C, which is repentance and forgiveness. In other words, if Jesus is our Savior, it means that we can be saved. But please hear this. God did not just save you in order to be saved. He saved you to be changed. He saved you to go and live like he is your Lord. We're saved to be changed. Repentance and forgiveness. And then letter D is what it finishes with. The Spirit of God is a witness. They are a witness. Meaning that the people of God are empowered and commissioned for obedience as witnesses. But the reason I wanted all all four of those rather up there is because there's a certain formula to take away. And I don't mean to hold a magnifying glass over this, but I think that this is the argument of Peter. See, what he's doing is he's saying, here's the meat. Here's the message. We're going to get to the application in just a minute, but the application flows from A, B, C, D. And what I mean by that is you cannot get D, empowered and commissioned, without C, repentance and forgiveness. You cannot get C, forgiveness, without the fact that you've been given a Savior. Amen? You don't get empowered and commissioned without repentance and forgiveness. And you don't get forgiveness without a leader and a savior. And you don't get a leader and a savior without understanding that you and I got a problem. 
that we bear the wages of our sin and death and that we indirectly are responsible for executing the Son of God. It was our sin that held him there. And only understanding our guilt before a holy God can we really understand and flow the flow of the argument, which is, I got a big sin problem, and Jesus presented a big solution. You do not get the offer of forgiveness without coming to grips with the reality that we are guilty. Because the gift communicates a need. You don't give a gift unless there's a need for the gift, right? This is what's happening. God gives a gift of eternal life because you and I got a problem of eternal death. The first international flight that I ever took was to Brazil. I didn't plan that ahead of time. I think it was Brazil. It was uh, at the end of college, several years ago. And um, things have changed since then because you do a lot of things on your phone. But some of you guys may know what I'm talking about. Uh, before you touch down for immigration, they walk up into the stewardess, walks up and down the aisle, and they give you something. Uh, it's like immigration papers. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you guys have been out of the country. They give you this, this piece of paper. It's about like this. And it's these immigration papers, this document that you have to fill out. And then you take it to uh, customs whenever you land, whether it be going to or coming back from. And you go and give this document to them at customs. And this is what you have to fill out in order to have the credential to hopefully get back home. Hopefully you do get back home because this is a great place to live. <laughs> But I remember being on my first international flight and her coming through and, and she gave me that document and I'd had no clue what to do. I'm glad my mommy was there with me because she helped me to understand what that thing was in my hand because I needed a credential to gain access. In other words, that stewardess was not just handing out the paper to give us something to doodle, right? There was a need for that. The distribution of that communicated the need for that. It wasn't arbitrary. Guys, the fact that God sent his son Jesus to die on a cross and bear the tree it's not arbitrary. It's not meaningless. There's a reason for the gift. Amen? There is a reason for that gift. Peter is giving them gospel. And the gospel of good news begins with an accusation of bad news. He says, you killed him. That's true. They can deflect it. They can disobey and say, eh, doesn't matter. The truth is the truth. And that is that Peter must level against them an accusation of sin before they can receive the gift of salvation. Same is true for us. God must lay against us an accusation of wrongdoing of the guilty party. We are the guilty party. Without understanding our guilt, we cannot understand our need to be made guiltless, to be made clean. Peter cannot testify to the saving work of Jesus without testifying to the need for saving, the crime of sin. Guys, the same is true for us. There is a credential that God requires that left to ourselves, you and I do not possess. But Jesus came distributing a credential. Not just for us to doodle and say, well, this is cool, well, whatever. But for us to take that and say, this is a ticket that I must have, a price that I must receive. And for those that believe in him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. Because the best gifts are, motiv are motivated by the biggest needs. It's the essence of the gospel. You and I are cosmic offenders, sinning against a holy God. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. You know what wages are? Wages are something you get for something that you do. We like wages when they're good. These are bad wages. You and I have done something, and we get something for that. The penalty for our sin. Contrasted with that in that verse of Romans 6.23 is the gift of God. You know what a gift is? Something you did not do to receive. God took the wages that you did do to receive, took those away, and instead bestows on us the gift of eternal life, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have that eternal life. That's the message. And Peter's got to get that out in front because what we're going to see next is the movement. And the movement has two main components. Number one is a special scattering. It's a special scattering. <clears throat> you could call it a dispersion. Dispersing. A special scattering. What we're going to see next is that the Sanhedrin cannot get over the accusation that the heretic, and we'll put that in air quotes, the heretic that they had murdered was actually God's gift of salvation. And so what happens next in verse 33 is it says they were enraged. Let's look at it. Verse 33 and 34. When they had heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. 
Gamaliel uh, was a Pharisee, and we've been reading a lot about Sadducees, and I'm not going to go into too much of the weeds there, but uh, despite the fact that he did not agree with a lot of the guys leading the charge, which are the Sadducees, him being a Pharisee, he still was widely respected by them. It says in this verse, uh, he was held in honor, meaning that he had a lot of influence even among the Sadducees and as members of the whole of the Sanhedrin. Other ancient writings, before you start thinking that maybe Gamaliel's a good guy because of the defense that he's about to give, not so fast. Other ancient writings, again, this is not in Scripture, but it's ancient documents that run alongside Scripture that are helpful to us. Gamaliel is believe, believed that Christians were heretics and that they should be killed. He is not remotely friendly to Christians, but he is more measured in his approach in our passage. Clearly, he's, he's thinking here. It says that he wants to put the guys outside. So it says, let's put the apostles outside so that we can confer and discuss this together, which is what they do. They begin to deliberate. Look at verse 35. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. His way of saying, be careful. Let's not act too quickly. Here's his reason. Verses 36 and 37. I love this. It reads like a history book. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed. Notice the scattering words, dispersed, and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished. He died. And all who followed him were scattered. See, Gamaliel doesn't necessarily disagree with charging them with blasphemy deserving death but he does suggest a wait-and-see approach. You see, he points out that this isn't the first time some wayward Jew claiming to be somebody gathered a following and then disappeared from history. He mentions a couple of examples of that. Other leaders have had other movements, and he says this is how they went. There's four components to that. These are not going to be on the screen, but the four things is he says they rose up. He uses the same word both times. They rose up. They had this come up. They rose up. The second thing is that they gathered a following, 400. He mentions for Theodos. He doesn't mention the number for the other guy. Third, they died. And then fourth, kind of closing the book, their people scattered. They dispersed. The movement died with them as the people dispersed and they scattered. So this is his formula. He says, we got another guy that's risen up. He's got some sort of a following. But here's what we know. Although he gains a following after rising up, we know that he's dead. Jesus said, he said, we know he's dead. And so the movement is going to stop because we've cut off the head of the snake, so to speak. This is his logic. Look at verses 38 and 39. So he says, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. By the way, the word for opposing God, it literally is Godfighter. You'll be found to be a Godfighter, is what he's saying. So they took his advice. His point is that the Sanhedrin, again, having been careful about the way that they arrested these guys because they didn't want to cause a problem and get stoned. Not that kind of stone. Yeah, I didn't mean to say that. Um, so his point is that the Sanhedrin doesn't have to risk political ruin in order to deal with this issue. He doesn't have to risk, they don't have to risk political ruin to deal with this issue. Because the apostles now have a massive following, killing them outright, no matter how blasphemous their words, it would be dangerous as far as the political move goes, because those interested uh, in that following would say, you've killed our leader, we're coming at you. He said, let's just wait, let's just let it die out. He's saying that not because he thinks their, their cause is noble, but because he's saying, if we want to preserve ourselves, we need to just let this one alone. Again, what's the motivation? It's jealousy. And as a general rule of thumb, movements that are not of God, especially within their faith, they did tend to die out relatively quickly, which is what he points out. He says at the end of verse uh, 38, this is really cool. He says, um, if this undertaking or plan uh, is of man, it will fail. I want you to notice the words, it will fail. He then says, if it is of God, you will not even be able to overthrow them. It says it will fail versus overthrow. In the Greek, it's the same word. And the reason I point that out is that the meaning is the movement will either be destroyed on its own or no one will be able to destroy it. How about that? It's either going to destroy, on its, destroy itself on its own or no one will be able to destroy it. Why? Because it's the will of God. This is his point. We know that to be true. Proverbs nineteen twenty one: Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So let's go back to their formula. 
Guy rises up. He rises up and, and he secondly gains a following. Thirdly, he dies. And then fourthly, the movement dies with him because the followers scatter. They disperse. Is that what happened with Jesus? Let's think about it. He rose up. In fact, Peter uses the exact word just a moment ago. God raised him up. God, he brought him up. He gained a following. Check. He died. Did he stay dead? And this is where the formula changes. See, Jesus died, but he came back to life. Let's look at the fourth one then. When he dies, does the movement die with it? It says, again, with Theodos, it says they dispersed. He says with the other guy, Judas the Galilean, it says they scattered. Here's the irony of that. I love this. The church was dispersed. The church did scatter, but the church dispersed. In fact, it was called the dispersion. The people that dispersed. But the great ironic thing about this, and I just love this, is that this church, the early church, it scattered and dispersed, not in defeat and scramble, but in victory and triumph. And this led not to the death of the movement, but to the explosive multiplication of the movement. The irony is that they're right. The movement scatters, but it doesn't shrink. It multiplies. Fellowship, will you hear me say this? There is no army, there is no president, there is no decision maker, there is no culture mob that can stop the almighty God. Because this movement is not of man. And there are many God fighters, but there are none that will triumph over him. Because he knows no rival, he knows no equal. And the fact of the matter is whether they released these apostles or they killed them right there on the spot, the movement would move forward in power because it wasn't contingent on the 12. It was contingent on the one. No matter what happens, then and now, listen, no, what happens to the church in this nation? God is still God and there is none like him. God is still God and there is no one who rivals him because it's a movement and it's a special type of scattering, not one that dissipates but one that dominates. That's the movement. Secondly, second aspect of the movement is joy in the struggle. It just, this passage just like crescendos, it just heats up and heats up. I love the way that this ends. There's joy in the struggle. Look at the way it ends. Verse 40, Gamaliel, man, drops some seemingly philosophical wisdom. It says, And when they had called in the apostles, <clears throat> verse 40, they beat them. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, that is the apostles, left the presence of the council, sad and downtrodden and wounded, going to get stitches, right? No, it doesn't say that. They left the presence of the council rejoicing. Why? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Wow. They're glad to take the beating is what that says. It says they went out rejoicing. They didn't go out rejoicing because they loved pain. Not because they enjoyed the suffering, but because they are considered worthy to be dishonored for, quoting, the name. The name above every name. There are a lot of passages. I just, I'm going to love reading this, man. Jesus said this was coming which is why they have joy. Listen, Luke 6, same author, Luke 6, 22 and 23. Blessed are you when, this is Jesus, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. John 15, 18 through 21. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. One of the persecutors of the church initially, Saul of Tarsus, would be given the name Paul because of his ministry to the Gentiles. Referring to Paul, Jesus said in Acts 9, 16, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. You cannot miss that. There's no prosperity gospel in the Bible. I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. The guy who Jesus was talking about in Acts 9 wrote this in 2 Corinthians 6, 4 through 5 and 8 through 10. It says, but as servants of God, please listen to these words. I mean, it's so powerful. I, 
I can't believe I didn't know these words better when I, when I found these. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Listen to what Paul says. By great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known. He's saying by God, as dying and behold, we live. He's talking about a greater life, eternal life, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, and listen to this, yet making many rich. He's not talking about money. As having nothing, and yet possessing everything. Guys, that is the essence of the gospel. That everyone in this room, if you are in Christ, can I tell you something? You're rich. Rich beyond any dollar amount could possibly rival. We are rich. And we may be slandered. We may be beaten. We may even be crucified. But many are the riches of those that belong to Jesus. Love these verses. And I can, man, I pray that you will commit them to memory. Rejoicing in the beating is what it says they did. Not because they loved pain, but listen to this. Because they loved being able to say that the world saw enough Jesus in them that they were treated like he was. Can we say that? Not because they loved the pain. That's not the source of their joy. The source of their joy was that they loved being able to say that the world saw enough Jesus in them that they were treated the same way that he was. Guys, there is nothing casual about Christianity. There's nothing casual about Christianity. In verse 39, Gamaliel said, you will not be able to overthrow them. You know, the fact of the matter is they could kill them, but they couldn't defeat them. To live as Christ, to die is gain, Paul said. In this situation, they're beaten and released before they were just released. They were threatened. Threatened, released, beaten, released. They would even in just one chapter after the one that we're about to look at, in chapter 7, they would martyr Stephen. And guess what? The result of all of those things is the exact same. The gospel goes forward. The message goes forward. The movement grows. It doesn't shrink. Whether it be beatings or slanderings or persecutions or hardships, floggings, murder, they couldn't stop the church because they can't stop our God. Guys, if the gates of hell could not prevail against God's church, do you think any lesser enemy has a legitimate chance? Absolutely not. You know, it costs very little in our culture, in our context, to call yourself a Christian. But you live long enough and it will cost you something to live like one. Can you say that the world sees enough Jesus in you that they treat you the way that they would have treated him? Can you say that? Verse 42 says that they went and continued doing the same thing. Teaching, which means instructing of God's word, and preaching, which means evangelizing the lost. Kept at it. For the early Christians, it was worth literally taking a beating or worse if it meant that others may believe. Guys, do we care about the souls that we are called to suffer in order to reach? Do we care about them? How can we say that we'd suffer to reach them if we won't even be bold enough to invite them to church? How can we say that we are bold enough to suffer for the name of Jesus if we're not even bold enough to speak in the name of Jesus. In December of 1930, a guy named Albert Einstein, you ever heard of that name? A guy named Albert Einstein was invited by a guy named Abraham Flexner. He was a leading researcher in, at Princeton. Uh, Einstein was invited to come to the United States to uh, do a, a visiting professorship. The, the context that Einstein was leaving in Germany was just before World War II. Things were starting to heighten in, in Europe. Um, the violence against the Jews was on the rise in Germany. Political instability was spreading across the continent of Europe. That was in 1930. That invitation was extended. 
By 1933, realizing the danger, Einstein, who himself, by the way, possessed Jewish heritage, he decided to accept a permanent position at Princeton, effectively immigrating to the United States. Now, that move would have massive implications, not just for Einstein, but for the whole world. Because while at Princeton, Einstein continued his groundbreaking work in physics and quantum theory, which doesn't make any sense to me, but this next part does. But because far greater than that is that it was his presence in the United States that led to one of the most significant events of the 20th century, the development of the atomic bomb. In 1939, alarmed by the possibility of Nazi Germany developing nuclear weapons, Einstein signed a letter to another guy you might know, President Franklin D. Roosevelt. In that letter, he urged the United States to accelerate its own atomic research. That letter then played a key role in initiating the U.S. government's initiative that led to the development of the Manhattan Project, which would eventually lead to the development of the first atomic bomb. And that weapon changed the course of World War II and the nature of international relations and warfare forever. A simple invitation to the United States not only saved Einstein from potentially falling victim to the Holocaust of the Jews, but also inadvertently set the stage for a scientific and military development that altered the course of global history. You understand that if not for that invitation and countless other wide-ranging small decisions, you and I may be speaking German or Japanese. And I know that's just one variable, and I don't mean to overstate that. But an invitation can be a big thing, even if it's a small thing. Big things have small beginnings. We underestimate the value of an invitation. People that were new to church and then were invited to church um, or, or new to church were asked uh, as part of a study, what initially brought you to church? 7% said they walked in by their own initiative. 3% said they liked the program that was offered at the church. <clears throat> 9% said that they liked the pastor. I don't think we have that problem here. 3% said that they had, had a, a need that was met by the church. 2% said that they were evangelized by the church. And listen to this. 70 to 85% said that they were invited by a relative or friend. The Billy Graham Association conducted a national survey, and 82% of our unchurched peers say that they would come to church with a friend or relative if they were invited. 82%. That's four out of five. Now, there's a lot of opposition out there, church. Is there opposition to the church in the world? Absolutely, there is opposition to the church. But it's just as true that we do not care enough about our neighbor, our coworker, our friend, our classmate, whatever it may be, in order to suffer even in the slightest if it means reaching them. One of the greatest obstacles of the church is the lack of boldness inside of it. One of the greatest obstacles of the church it's not out there. It's the lack of boldness right here. I had a conversation recently, and I've had a lot of conversations recently that are just absolutely blowing my mind. We're having this, I don't know if you noticed or not, we're having this resurgence. It's a revival is what it is. We're having a resurgence of not just people being saved, not just people being baptized, not just people taking steps of obedience, but this is what's crazy. You ready? Young men. You know how foreign that is to churches? They're having young men that are showing up and boldly saying, I surrender. You go ask the 40 churches in our association, I bet you less than three can say that. Maybe one. This one. What we're seeing right now is unheard of. And here's what's exciting about it, is that these men are boldly not just saying, I want to follow, but almost all of them, you know what I hear them say? It's for my kids. It's for my wife. There is such a strong correlation between a leading husband and father that takes a spiritual headship role, and you see the dominoes fall around him. It's a correlation, not a causation, but it is a correlation. Guys, this church right now is experiencing generational wealth. And I'm not talking about our bank account. You have these guys that didn't come up in church, didn't come up understanding the Bible, but are excitedly saying, 
I know that this is what I'm supposed to do, and I surrender. And don't you understand, that one decision, which may have just started with a simple invitation, is going to save, possibly, their sons and daughters, and perhaps even their sons and daughters. A simple invitation and a small decision having massive implications of rescuing souls. I'm not even talking about suffering. Is it not worth it to just say something? Is it not worth it to just go and be a bold, out there believer that says, come and see, come and drink from the well, that you'll never go thirsty again? Guys, there are guys, young men in our church that are breaking a generational pattern of lostness, hopelessness, and are pathfinding and trailblazing for their families. You want to talk about revival? You ain't seen nothing yet. Because God has a hand on these men. And when you see a young man especially go through these baptismal waters, I know it's the same, but I also know it's not. Because you're talking about generational impact. And God is doing something in our church family. We want to reach people. But we have to extend a hand to reach people. We don't just share Facebook posts to reach people. We share our lives. We share our hearts. We share our voices. And we do not just reach them. Please listen. We don't just reach them with programs. We don't just reach them with services. We reach them with the movement. But we reach them with the movement because of the message. And by the way, that message is a message that we speak of the need because we speak from experience. You speak of the gift of salvation because you speak from experiencing that salvation. And if you lack the boldness, I simply urge you to consider, have you experienced salvation? And if you have, what's taming your tongue? What's quenching the Spirit? Guys, can we go and love our neighbors enough to suffer for them? And if not, can we even say that we're loving our neighbors? And it may not feel like recess, but God produces big things from the classroom of cost. And if it leads to suffering, rejoice that you had enough Jesus in you to be treated like him.